huh? What a passage of scripture that'll preach. Um, this is uh, maybe a strange text. Um, you may not have heard many pastors preach this one. This is why we preach book by book, verse by verse, because we want to hear from God, not from man, right? Um, I did not select this passage um, for this day. It has landed where it has landed, and I believe so for our good. Even though this may seem a strange or difficult passage of scripture with all the names and the strange family relations that's going on and the servants, um, I believe it's the Lord talking directly to Main Street this morning. Some of us feel angry today. Some of us feel deeply discouraged. Some of us feel offended or personally betrayed. Some of us are in sin and are in envy. And it's causing us to do or say things that we will later regret. And I want to be clear that as I preach this text, I am not using this pulpit as a platform to argue with people or to state an opinion or to stir up further drama. My job is to give you God's word. God's word today is Genesis 30, and it's hard. I love this church. I am not a perfect pastor, but I love you. I want to shepherd you accountable to God the way I will have to answer to him one day. And you know what? God loves you far more than I do. Far more than I do. And this word from him this morning is not against us, but for us, for our good, for our building up that we might be changed. God's word to us this morning is twofold. I believe that he has us in Genesis 29 and 30. First, to openly rebuke sin in the family. To openly rebuke sin in the family. And then secondly, to give us hope in the sovereignty of God. To give us hope in the sovereignty of God. I just want to be real honest beginning of this sermon and the end of this sermon are going to be real hopeful and, and, and good for our souls, and, and it's all going to be good for our souls, but the middle part is going to be hard. The middle part is going to be hard. Let me give you some context. The deceiver, Jacob, was deceived himself. He went to Haran, as he was told to do, after deceiving his father Isaac to get the blessing, right? Remember the story. He stops in Bethel. He sets up the pillar. God blesses him, affirms him as the uh, new patriarch. Uh, he gets to Haran. He finds Rachel. Then he finds Uncle Laban. They take him in. And then Uncle Laban gets this great idea to deceive Jacob, his nephew, into marrying both of his daughters, the oldest, Leah, and the younger, Rachel. Um, and we see him now, this morning, um, bearing even further consequences of his deceit in a previous life and the deceit of Uncle Laban. And we have a full-on family feud going on in this passage. Um, it is nothing less than an episode of Days of Our Lives or any other soapbox. And I believe the 
Lord is giving us to us that we might learn through our bitter circumstances of affliction, strife, manipulation, or blessing. God remains sovereign and faithful. God remains sovereign and faithful. In this passage we learn he's sovereign over oppression. He is sovereign over strife. He is sovereign over manipulation. He is sovereign over growth. This is the word of God. Let's look at verse 31 again. We'll see the Lord sovereign over oppression. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. When Leah conceived and bore a son, she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So uh, we'll see. She has four sons, and I'll try to keep all that together for you because there's a lot of names going on here. But first, we need to see the Lord saw that Leah, the oldest, unwanted daughter, was hated. He saw that. And the word hate in the Hebrew is not quite as strong as we use the word hate. It really means, you know, the one he didn't prefer, the one that was unloved, the one he, he just didn't really treat her as a wife, right? He didn't give her the preference that he gave Rachel. Still, Leah is desperate for Jacob's attention. She is trying to woo him. She's trying to win his heart over, which is why I believe she was in cahoots with Laban when she wore her veil down that wedding night, right? She wanted to marry Jacob, and God saw her mistreatment when they woke up the next morning and Jacob was so disturbed. God did not ignore Leah's oppression. Simultaneously, God saw Rachel saw that she was loved by Jacob, saw that uh, she was the preferred one, but he chose not to bless her. The, te the text is clear here, right? God closed her womb. God opened her womb. God closed Rachel's womb. God opened Leah's. The Lord is doing this. Here's where we learn quickly that this passage is about God's sovereignty. And all of Genesis, right? Sarah, Rebecca, and now Rachel... All of them barren, barren, barren. Why? To show us God must do this. God is in control of this situation. We must get it out of our heads that God does good things to good people and bad things to bad people. What does God do? God does whatever he wants. Right? In fact, we see God doing the opposite of what we think he should do. He goes to the unfavorable people. The people who are oppressed and outcast and unwanted, unlovable, rejected, and he chooses to bless them. If there's going to be a pattern of God's behavior in scripture, it's that, right? And that's exactly what he does with Leah. And he gives her four children. The first one, he opens her womb. She gives birth to her firstborn, Reuben, which means God sees. She exclaims, God has looked upon my affliction. Homeboy must have knew how to make some good sandwiches, too. She gives him a second son, Simeon. Simeon, God hears, God has heard my affliction. Uh, God has heard that I was hated and has given me a second son, Simeon. A third son, he opens her womb. His name is Levi, and she says, which means God joins together. Now, finally, with three children, God will join me with Jacob and see that, that we are meant to be together, and he loves me if I give him finally, her fourth son is Judah. 
God deserves praise. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. If you haven't caught on just by the first names here, the Lord is establishing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's keeping his covenant to multiply the household of Jacob, just as he promised he would do. And this is amazing, right? Because you have this promise all the way back to Abraham. How many kids does Abraham have? One and a half, right? Uh, uh, Isaac, or, um, Isaac and uh, Ishmael, thank you. And, uh, and then how many kids does Isaac have? Two, just two, right? Jacob and Esau. And so, wow, the Lord is really growing this nation pretty slow, right? And then we get to Jacob. By the end of this chapter, he's got 11 boys and one girl, right? So the Lord is using all this sin that's blatant and gross to show his sovereignty to make a nation. And we'll see that more throughout Genesis. But as we consider God's sovereignty over oppression and affliction in our lives today, there's a timely application. And that's that we must pursue biblical justice when we talk about oppression, right? We have all these words being thrown around about what justice looks like. We have to hold people accountable and everybody's upset and statues are being taken down and people are mad and we have all these new words that nobody knows what they mean, right? Critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, social justice, XYZ. These all claim to have an enlightened view of justice and accountability for those who practice injustice and oppression. But even though there may be some places where we overlap, these ideologies do not uphold God's worldview, the worldview of the Christian. We do care for the homeless. We abhor racism. We care for the widow, the fatherless. We hold people accountable. We, we call people to confess their sins. But we have a different answer for these things. They say the problem is poor communication, being white, right? Voting for the wrong people. What does the Bible say? The problem is sin. Sin and sin. So we feed the hungry. We serve the oppressed. We despise wrongdoing and taking the life of anyone made in the image of God. But the Bible tells us the answer for all of these things is only Jesus, who reconciles all men to God and all men to one another. The Great Commission is not that we go into the world and make socially responsible human beings that we make disciples. And as we make disciples across all the nations, truly God's prophecy of goodwill toward men through Christ Jesus will come to be. So as we pursue justice, let's just make sure we're preaching the gospel above all. But to get personal, to get personal, oppression in your life, affliction in our lives, the Lord sees and hears every wrongdoing done against you and every wrongdoing done against this church. Every bit of it. He sees every oppression in Spindale, North Carolina. He sees every oppression of every nation, what's going on in Cuba. He sees every wrong thing. He sees our oppression. When we feel like brothers and sisters hate us, like Jacob I know about your oppression. 
We can't say God is absolutely sovereign only when things are good. That makes no sense according to Scripture. God is sovereign in the good, in the bad, in injustice, oppression, affliction. Times are hard. I know times are hard. But God sees our hard times. And he loves us. He sees us. He hears us. And like Leah, God will hear and act on our behalf and turn our oppression into words of praise. He will turn our sorrows into joy. He will turn our mourning into gladness. He reigns over injustice. And he alone is the solution to injustice. But injustice, of course, leads to strife, which is what this family experiences next. Jacob has chosen preference. The family now turns to strife. And God is sovereign over that too. Verse 1, chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, I am, in the place of, am I in the place of God who has withheld, you, withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her, that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so uh, we see birth wars going on here, right? Stemming from Rachel's envy over um, Leah being able to have children and her not being able to. She goes to uh, Jacob very angry and um, uh, pointing at him in a, um, uh, a responsible way. And Jacob says, am I God? Am I God? Right? The Lord has closed your womb. Nevertheless, God was indeed allowing this sin again for the multiplication of a nation. But we too must ask, are we in the place of God? Are we in the place of God? And we have this lesson that we've learned over and over and over again. My mic just died. Let's turn on the pulpit. <laughs> uh, we have this lesson that we've learned over and over and over. We've seen Abraham and Sarah impatient, waiting for the Lord to come through for their firstborn, waiting year after year after year after year. What do they do? Let's go to Hagar to finally have a son. They try to be God. And now, this blasphemy is going to be doubled in Jacob's life as Rachel and Leah are both saying, Hey, take my servant. Go into her. Have more children that we might have children. Rachel gives her Bilhah. Leah gives her Zilpah. And they both have two children, making a total of four from now these servant women and now a total of eight children altogether, four from Leah, four from the servant women. And based on their names, it really shows who these women believed was in control. Dan means to judge or to vindicate. And Rachel even says, as Dan was born, that God has judged me. God has vindicated me and given me a son. But the irony of what Rachel says there is we know God does not vindicate sin. Right? Rachel claims God has vindicated her, but her womb is still closed. Did God give her that child, or did she get that child through her own flesh and her own maneuvering? She is still trying to be God. The second one, Naphtali, wrestling. She says, me and my sister threw down, WWE style. I won. I am the winner. To me be the glory. She's acting in a very man-centered way. Leah says, Two can play at that game. Here's Zilpah. 
Jacob has with Zilpah two more children, Gad, which means good fortune. And, you know, where it seems positive in these words, it's probably more of an ungodly connotation. Gad is a word that stems from foreign roots, referring to general good fortune and pagan gods sending blessing upon other nations. It could also be interpreted generically as just God. And, of course, Asher very clearly means happy. Uh, or sounds like happy. Leah believes she's won the day. I'm the happy one. I'm the winner. You might think you won with Naphtali, but I've got Asher. I've got six children now, Rachel. You only have two, and they're not even really yours. This is a family feud. Do we know anything about fighting in the family? No. God has us in Genesis 30. On purpose. And I mean no ill will towards visitors this morning, but it's amazing how God's word comes sharp, sharp as a two edged sword. And a lot of you are into knives right now, right? Xander, Zach, Jay. I haven't even looked at this yet. I hope this isn't too scary. Uh, but Jay, he, 2020, made this knife. Hope I don't cut myself. But you're looking at it, and it's pretty scary looking. And of course, the Word of God has the analogy of a double-sided blade that makes sure it pierces on both sides. Now, why would God's Word, above all things, be compared to a sword, a weapon? What do swords do? They slay. They kill, right? What does God word, God's word intend to kill? Why does God have us here? Our membership letter is not the cause of turmoil in the church. Our behavior, our judgment, our fighting, our boasting, our wrestling with one another is what causes turmoil in the church. Change is not what causes turmoil. Disagreements are not what cause turmoil. Sin is what causes turmoil in the family of God. Our sinful behavior is the cause. And God is telling us this morning from his word to take a look at your heart, repent, don't act this way, stop killing the family of God, stop eating each other, stop slandering each other, stop making up rumors, stop saying things that aren't true, stop lying about the leadership of your church, stop conspiring quietly from your living room. Stop. God is saying to us that when we behave this way, we look like a couple of sister wives embarrassing each other as we fight over illegitimate children. to stop. God's word tells us how to stop. How do we stop? Romans 13 tells us, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in the nighttime. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Nothing good happens after midnight, right? I feel every bit of confidence in our replant team and our desire to pursue meaningful membership and healthy church membership because we've been completely open about it. We've been walking in the day. We've been answering phone calls and giving every bit of generosity and trying to hear from you. We have no flesh that we're trying to, to gratify here. But the response we've received has not been in the daylight. Some of you have come and talked directly to me about your concerns. Some of you have pursued jealousy and strife and have gratified the desires of the flesh. God is calling all of us, wherever you are in this situation, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Wear righteousness. Wear Christ-centered thinking. Renew your minds. Walk in the daylight. Be honest with each other. Be honest with yourself. Don't go out at night. The sword is sharp. And it causes us to evaluate what's going on in the life of our church. We must put on Christ. And unfortunately, the passage shows us how quickly sin unravels in the body and unravels in the family. They pursue strife here. And, and instead of peace, they go, they go further. They could have repented, right? But they chose to go further in their deceit and their manipulation. The sword was avoided. It's after midnight. And now they're trying to steal mandrakes. Look at verse 14. Sovereign over manipulation. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Jacob came in from the field in the evening. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. So Rachel wants Reuben's mandrakes. Mandrakes are some type of flower, a bulb uh, used for different purposes. I think they were edible. Uh, and he was gathering them, collecting them, and Rachel wanted some. And Leah says, you've already stolen my husband. I was married to him first. Are you going to take everything I have? And she says, well, why don't we make a deal? I'll give you some mandrakes if you let me have Jacob tonight. That we can make more children. And this, in a word, is just grossly inappropriate. How far they have come from a God-honoring peaceful family of one flesh pursuing God's glory. And the worst part of all this is how they are scheming in the dark while the children are watching and then giving God the glory for it when their children are born. Issachar means wages. They say, God's paid me with a son because I manipulated Rachel into purchasing my son's mandrakes that I could have sex with my husband. To God be the glory. Zebulun means honor. This son, she thinks, God has given to make Jacob honor or exalt her above the place of Rachel. 
He says, now I have six children. Rachel still has zero. I am the honored one. And then ironically, the girl, Dinah, is born in this scene. And she has no commentary. And what's ironic about it is that she takes up the meat of the next passage. So we'll learn more about Dinah, but it's the female version of the word Dan, which means to judge. It's the same word she named her older brother, her, uh, the older brother, but the female version. When we begin to gratify the desires of our flesh, we begin to also start tampering with more calculated sins. Usually, as in the case of Leah and Rachel, it's because we want to get what we want no matter the cost. When we first leave Christ to indulge the flesh, it's usually sloppy and careless when we choose to fall prey to temptation. But then it grows. Something like Psalm 36 happens, saying he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Sin is not static. If we feed it, it will grow. We begin to plot our sins, as Leah did that day. One day we're thinking an irreverent or hateful thought about a brother or a sister in Christ. Instead of repenting, we let it fester until we lie awake at night thinking up ways to ruin them. And then when we see our children picking mandrakes in the field, we get a plot to destroy them once and for all. This may be happening to you personally. God may be calling it out in your life. I'm afraid this may be happening in our church. And do you know the most egregious form this has taken in the church today? People have let their sin not only take over their words and their deeds, but also their minds. And instead of renewing their minds by the power of the gospel, they've allowed sin to taint their very understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have told you from day one that I am going to lead us to be a Christ-centered church. I'm not interested in going anywhere else. That is my only aim. This means when people say Jesus plus anything, as Psalm 36 says, they've set themselves in a way that is not good. Jesus plus fill in the blank. Jesus plus a big choir. Jesus plus a big youth group. Jesus plus tradition. Jesus plus anything you want more than Jesus is not Christ-centered thinking. And these aren't bad things. I love those things. Right? But we are centered on Christ. The definition of the church is upon the very cornerstone of Jesus and no other. We don't have Jesus. We don't have a church. You add something to Jesus, you take away the cornerstone. Every time we add something to the gospel and make it a primary issue of salvation and fundamental Christianity, we are offering up our mandrakes to Rachel, saying, here, lie with our husband. Why? So we get what we want. It's been a hard week. I know people are leaving. And you know people are leaving. If you're leaving, it's my last pastoral duty to you. I ask you to do this. 
ask yourself, are you leaving because you're not getting what you want? Or are you leaving because the gospel is no longer the central focus of what we are doing? It is not the unforgivable sin to leave a church. I've left churches. You've probably left churches. I think anybody in here has been here forever. But there are good, godly, honorable reasons to leave churches. But let's be honest. Let's think through a decision like that. If you believe that we have forsaken the gospel with our actions, you should hold us accountable. And you should call us back to faithfulness. If we lose the gospel, right, and refuse to come back to it, I'll be the first one to go. I'll, I'll lead us <laughs> when we leave the gospel. But if you see the desires of your heart blinding you from the preciousness of the treasure of Jesus Christ, in which any man with a brain would purchase an entire field to dig up that pearl and have it more than anything else, then leaving isn't the answer. We're going to preach the gospel here. We're going to teach the Bible here. We're going to love one another and serve one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to call out sin and we're going to pursue Christ above all. What more could a follower of Christ possibly want? That's what I have to give to you. Family, be careful. You aren't sitting in the dark while the children are watching. And don't say God did it when you leave for sinful reasons. The sovereign one sees all. And praise be to God that he can take this gross sin of Genesis 30 and build a people for his own possession. He can do that for us too because he's the God who gives. He's the God who takes away. He's sovereign over oppression, over strife, over manipulation. And let me give you some hope because he's sovereign over growth. Rachel's womb is finally opened. God remembered Rachel. The very end of this passage in verse 21. He opened her womb, she conceived, she bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach, and she called his name, what? Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph literally means to add, but sounds like the word to take away. Really cool Hebrew thing. <laughs> to give, to add, to take away. And God remembered after all these years, Rachel. Because he's sovereign over time. And this is the most unique name, I think, of all the names given here. J Joseph is miraculously given by God in the ninth hour. He would be the one saving all of Egypt from or all of uh, his brothers from famine in Egypt. We know how the story goes, right? God was gracious to Rachel and to their whole family to give Joseph in the ninth hour. But the scarlet thread, we might be surprised, does not go on through Joseph. Rachel was certainly chosen for Jacob. But it was Leah's fourth son, Judah, that would father Perez, and would father Hezron, and Ram, and Amenadab, and Nashon, and Salmon, and Boaz, and Obed, and Jesse, and David. And 25 generations later, there would be another Joseph. And this Joseph would certainly add to the world, but not through his own blood. This Joseph would be obedient 
to the angel who would appear to say, the Son of God is coming to your betrothed. You must stay with her. He will be born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. And he would grow up teaching in the temple, waiting for the fullness of time to come, and would then begin preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in me that you might gain eternal life. And he would go to the cross to die for our sins and then be resurrected from the dead that all who believe in him might not perish. All of us who are jealous and envious and pursue rivalries and hate each other might be forgiven. And then the Father, or Jesus would say about the Father, if you don't forgive one another, why should my Father forgive you? Through Leah, the unwanted, the oppressed, the hated one, the forgotten one would come the Savior of the world. If you're not in Christ this morning, believe on Jesus. Be born again. Be made alive by the power of the Spirit. See the preciousness of this pearl that was buried for you to find. Come and believe on Christ. Let me draw out two other applications real quick. We'll be done. God is in control of decline, and God is in control of growth. You can't get anything else out of those last few verses. Joseph literally means God gives, God takes away. God closes wombs, God opens wombs. God makes people leave churches, God makes people join churches. We know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, solid food for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready yet, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. I am nothing. I don't grow churches. Pastors don't grow churches. Programs don't grow churches. God grows churches. God gives Joseph. God gives. God takes away. There is no argument. We must change our way of thinking about this. God gives the growth. And since God gives the growth, he's sovereign over our church, and we can learn to treat one another with grace and peace in the body of Christ. We are not going to agree on everything that ever takes place in the body. We're not going to agree with every decision that is ever made forever. There are a multitude of things we will always disagree on. Thank the Lord we aren't sovereign. Right? We can agree to disagree on a variety of issues knowing that Christ has all authority on heaven and on earth and we don't. And he has authority over our church to see its future through, to build it. 
to bless our conversations as we treat one another with grace and with peace. We want to see a culture at Main Street where we live in peace and harmony with, with one, another, one another over things that matter the most. What matters the most? Our communion that we share in the blood of Jesus. That's what matters. That is what has saved us and caused us to be born again. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same body, the same flesh, uh, the, the, the same faith, the same baptism, same Lord. We have covenanted together in this body to pursue Christ together. We're going to get hurt doing that. We're going to disagree. But that's what covenant life looks like. We are committed to one another no matter the hardships or the secondary disagreements. So we talk about hard things here. We seek to understand the other person's perspective. We offer grace and we offer peace, and we trust in the sovereign one who rules and reigns over this church. You know, when we started replanting almost a year ago now, I put five things before you. Hearts that were humble and teachable would be required for this to go on without a hitch. A commitment to the Bible above all. A willingness to do whatever it takes, meanings, meaning we'll, we'll sacrifice things that we prefer for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel. We're willing to do hard things together. That we want to see this community reached for the gospel. And that we want Jesus to be Lord above all. I challenge you again. Is this where you are? Is this where you are? For those who are oppressed, here is hope for you. God sees your oppression. God sees your affliction. God hears your affliction. For those of you in strife, here is hope. God calls you to walk in the light, to forgive others as he in Christ has forgiven you. For you who are struggling with God's giving and God's taking away as I am, here is hope. God doesn't make mistakes. He hasn't made one yet. He's not going to start now. Be of good courage. God is in control. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.